It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Tim Wallace, a strategic advisor to iPipeline, who has over 30 years of experience in the software, service, and consulting industry. In 2008, Tim joined iPipeline as CEO with the mission of scaling the company and solidifying it as an industry leader and innovator. Under his successful leadership, the company grew to be the largest provider of SaaS to the life and annuity industry. Tim previously served as president and CEO of MedDecision, a public software company. He received his Master's of Business Administration from Miami University and a Bachelor of Science degree from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Tim Wallace, welcome into the corner office. Well, thank you, Brand. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, great to have you here today. We're all about eight weeks into shelter uh, from the COVID-19 virus. Uh, we're not sure when this podcast will be heard, but uh, how are you holding out overall through this uh, very interesting times we're all experiencing? You know, I'm actually holding up pretty well. Um, it's actually the first time in my life that I've worked at home for eight weeks. <laughs> right. That's been, you know, quite interesting because, uh I'm kind of more of a social person. I like being with sure. my, you know, friends and my employees and uh, having a lot of interaction. Uh, so that's probably been the biggest adjustment is just, you know, looking at a computer most of the days. Zoom meetings and team meetings and everything else. Yeah. Now, it's uh, interesting times. And it's going to be very interesting, I think, as we move forward, what the new normal will be, because uh, I'm not sure we'll go back to the same way things were before. But uh, we'll, we'll we'll see, I guess, how that plays out. But today, we're really here to talk about you, Tim, and you know your tr incredible career. We had a chance to chat a few weeks back, and I've been so impressed by all the things that you've accomplished. But let's kind of start where it all started for you. Tell us a little bit about your early years and, you know, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yeah, I actually grew up in a little suburb outside of Pittsburgh called Penn Hills. And, uh, you know, my father was actually a lineman for the local utility company for most of All his right. career. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would categorize us as being, you know, very lower middle income family. We didn't know it. We never right. wanted for anything. Uh, right. But had very, very stable family environment, a lot of great friends and, uh, you know, had a pretty normal, normal uh, childhood, as I would say. Mom was stay at home. Brothers Mom was stay at home. Tell us a little bit about them. And uh, she could stretch a penny further than any person I ever met in my life. <laughs> that was very important for that generation. Brothers and sisters, Tim? Uh, I have an older sister. 
an Irish twin brother who's 13 months younger than me. Uh, but okay. We really grew up like twins. And then I have a younger sister about uh, four years younger than me. Awesome. Awesome. Terrific. And uh, dad, you said worked for the local utility company or was he for the telephone company as a lineman? Well, he worked for the local utility company, started, right. Uh, right. quite frankly, you know, climbing poles and hanging wires. And uh, by the time he retired, he was actually superintendent of uh, one of the largest electrical power plants in Pittsburgh. Wow. Wow. So one of those long-term career guys, right? Back in the day, 30, 40 years. There, I think or? it was like 43 years he was with that, that amazing? Company? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, what were some of the things that you you know remember about dad and mom in terms of maybe some of the uh, sayings they might've had or, or things that maybe inspired you as a youth? Well, you know, my dad was really a hard worker. Uh, you know, he would literally go to work at 6 30, 7 o'clock in the morning, come home at five. And then literally, uh, we never had a car in the shop. We never had a repairman in our house. He was very, very hands-on with everything, uh, instilled an incredible work ethic into us. Uh, both, both my parents were very honest people. Uh, so it was really all about the family, all about doing right, taking care of people, uh, you know, and making sure, as my mom used to say, you stayed on the right side of the railroad tracks. <laughs> Got it. Anybody else kind of a, a inspiration for you? Any coaches or teachers, uh, maybe a cousin or an uncle? Uh, throughout my career, there have been plenty. I spent uh, a lot of my high school years as an apprentice chef, putting myself through uh, college. Uh, so the chef that I worked for for about eight years was a tremendous mentor to me. Uh, once I got out of college, uh, my first uh, job was with Arthur Anderson at the time. Uh, there were a couple, a couple, two key partners there that really took me under their wings and uh, taught me a lot about the business world and uh, you know just interacting and managing people. Um, and then later on in my life, you know, a couple private equity guys and VCs that uh, I did a lot of work with over the years became uh, great mentors and friends as well. Yeah. Awesome. At back in the early years, were you a good student in school? No. <laughs> <laughs> or good at what you liked, perhaps, right? I tell this story all the time. I went to a little state university in Pennsylvania called IUP, Indiana right. University of Pennsylvania. And uh, my first semester, I got a 196. And if you didn't have a 2.0 by the end of your freshman year, you flunked out. So that that put a little bit of the fear of God in me, and uh, <laughs> you know, I got my act together and uh, graduated uh, very well. And then I went on to a master's program, and, and frankly, graduated uh, magna cum laude uh, for Miami University. And you and, did those back to back, right? You went on to Miami University, yeah. yeah. But I, yeah, I found awesome. business school much more interesting than college, right? Right, right. Were you, um, you know, back in high school years involved in sports, music, theater? What were some of your outside interests that obviously school didn't get your attention? <laughs> no, I was I was an active uh, tennis player all through uh, high school in my ah, first year of college. And I've been a golfer since I was probably seven years old. Nice, nice, good. And kept those sports up through the years, I imagine. I, well, I, I don't play tennis anymore, but I'm still very active on the golf course. Right, right. What about entrepreneurial things when you were younger? You obviously played that out later in your career, and we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, did you have the ubiquitous paper route? Did you do other things during times of year? Started delivering the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette at, I think, 10 years old, and you had to get up at 4.30 in the morning because I had a morning paper route. Probably the most funniest entrepreneurial uh, aspect of my life was my brother and I, when I think we were 13 or 14, bought Vino home winemaking kits, and we were making 
homemade wine up in our rafters and selling it to our friends. And my mom busted us, and I thought we were going to get cremated. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, that was a good, good, good uh, opportunity, I'm sure. It was very profitable. The cast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. High demand, right? Excellent. What did you spend that extra money on? What were some of your vices as a high schooler? Well, it didn't last very long, mind you. <laughs> I really didn't have a lot of vices. I actually went to work when I was 15 years old in the restaurant that I referred about. Literally, I would work uh, 105 hours a week during the summer when I was wow. home from school. And that allowed me to pay for college. And, uh, yeah, I was going to say, you paid your way through. Uh-huh. I actually, back then, and this is uh, 1975, would make $3,000 in a summer. That's a lot of money. Yeah, that would fund my entire college uh, uh, living expenses except spending money. And then typically once a once a weekend uh, during the month, I would come home and work two nights at the at the uh, restaurant, so I could make some money to go back and have spend the money for the other three weeks of the of the month. Nice, nice, great. And then, did you work while you were at school as well, or were you able to save enough during the the summer months to to kind of glide and just focus on your studies? Well, undergraduate, I came back and forth. I went, you know, the the school was only about an hour and ten minutes from my house, and I had a car, right. so I'd run back one weekend a month and, and get enough money to have spending money. Uh, and then once I got to graduate school, I actually went to graduate school on a scholarship, so I didn't have to work, nice. and uh, you know, they pretty much picked up the tab for everything. Was that an academic scholarship? Uh, it was. Yeah, excellent. And you did those back-to-back. Was that something that you had intended to do um, after you got your accounting degree, or was it just the scholarship came along and you said, "What? Well, why not? Let's go ahead and finish this up. I intended to go. I wanted to get done and go straight through. I wanted to get an MBA, uh, especially back in like the nineteen late late 1970 era having an MBA coming into the business world was right. uh, deemed right. to be much more important than I think it is today. Um, and it did give me competitive advantage. I think when I came out of graduate school, I never even got off campus and I, campus and I had like 18 job offers. Wow. That's fantastic. Well, and you went to work for Arthur Anderson. Now, was that while you were at school or was that after you finished? That was really my first uh, true professional job right out of graduate school. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And how long did you stay there? 11 years. 11 years. Fantastic. Great. And kind of went up through, went up through audit or went through the standard uh, consulting side of the business. What, what were you doing for that? I actually started out in their small business division, spent about six years there. And then I was recruited away because I was one of the few guys outside of the consulting division that knew anything about uh, microcomputers at the time. Um, And I actually, year seven through 11, I actually was one of the founders of what they called the business systems consulting division. And we took that entity from zero to 350 million in four years. I think we opened up in a couple hundred offices internationally. And uh, my job was to really focus on building a replication toolkit so we could go into an office and basically get them started in five days. Wow, cool. It sounded like they gave you some uh, pretty early leadership responsibilities. Is that right? I was actually in the office I was in. I was the youngest guy ever to make manager. I made manager in three and a half years, and that was usually a five to six year track. Um, And literally, by the time I was probably in my eighth year, I was operating as a partner. I just wasn't getting paid like one. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that happens when you're young. Were you managing uh, quite a few people that were older than you as well that have been on the job a while? Yeah, you know, I think most of my career, I was actually managing people that were younger than me. Probably in only one or two instances at Arthur Anderson did I really have people under me that were uh, older. They were kind of promote from within, weren't they? Uh, very Anderson? much so. 
Yeah, yeah, back in those days. Yeah, yeah they awesome. would they would recruit the top people out of the top universities and basically, you know, it was an upper out mentality. You you worked your rear end off. I can tell you most of my years I was there, I averaged uh, billable hours in the 2,400 to 26 hour range. And if you think about that, that means you're working like 60 or 70 hours mo- most weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Hard work. What were some of the earliest leadership lessons you learned from bosses and mentors during those days? Well, I think one of the most important things that they taught me was there was how to publicly speak and how to get in front of people and lead them. Yeah. Um, Anderson at the time was probably the number one accounting firm in the world. Right. And their training, they had a, they literally owned a small college outside of Chicago. And you as an employee probably went there anywhere from two to six weeks a year to get, get training of all different types. Uh, but the leadership training, the public speaking training that they gave me really became invaluable for the rest of my career. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's great. You wouldn't have thought that that would be the case at Arthur Anderson. But I guess particularly working with those small business folks, you needed to really learn how to communicate, right, and uh, be able to help and develop them. And what were some of the companies that you were exposed to during those years? Well, it's funny. I did a stint at Federated Investors, which is a great success story in Pittsburgh. It was actually a couple of school teachers that actually helped found the mutual fund industry. And I think I spent about two years there when I was in the small business group uh, working with the audit division. I think we took about 100 uh, mutual funds public over a two-year time frame. Um, But at the same point in time, people don't know this, but on a daily basis, a mutual fund has to price out its portfolio. And the market value of that fund has to be within one or two cents uh, for net asset value purposes uh, to be accurate. And when when I first got to Federated Investors, like at four o'clock, all hell would break loose because the entire accounting department would be trying to, you know, get get market value pricing on securities that they own. Some of the stuff was private. You know, there were all these SEC regulations. And uh, one of the things that I had a ball with was uh, trying to teach these people how to use a spreadsheet uh, in order to. automate that process versus doing all this manually at the time. I remember I handled one of the largest divorces in in Pennsylvania history. I had a client that owned 52 Perkins restaurants. He made more money than the uh, president of General Motors. So he was always getting audited by the IRS for uh, excess comp. He was an old Italian guy, uh, just a, just a darling person, him and his family. And for some reason, him and his wife, probably at 72 years old, decided to get divorced. Oh, my gosh. They buy houses next door to each other. It was just, it was just. Sounded like a tax play to me, Tim. I don't know. It it ended up being a tax play. We won't get into that. We we finally had to sit there. We won't get into that. Neither one of you ever even get on an airplane. So you never leave this little, listen, neither one of you ever even get on an airplane. So you never leave this little part thing and, and set this up. So you guys are happy. They're happy. And you're not paying attorneys for the next 10 years. Right, right. Interesting. Great. Well, you left there after a little over a decade, and it looks like you moved to XL Connect, which I think eventually became part of Xerox. So tell us a little bit about that. Was it difficult to leave after being so long at AA? Well, there was there was actually more of a story to it than that. While I was with Arthur Anderson, my brother and a friend of mine started a company out of our garage. And the year uh, that I left Arthur Anderson, we sold that company, and I made more money on the sale of that company than I did working at Arthur Anderson for 11 years. Nice. Um, 
So after I left there, my brother and I actually started two other companies that we took to the Inc. 500 and then sold. Um, and then I started a consulting company and I sold that company to a $5 billion publicly held company in Philadelphia, which became uh, XL Connect. Uh, after I sold it to them, they came back to me a year later and said, we have no idea what to do this. Would you come back and run it? Uh, and I really came back and I took it from literally four people to over 2,000 um, in about an eight-year window. Uh, I opened up 26 network integration offices throughout the United States. I brought Microsoft in, is one of my largest shareholders. Uh, I then convinced the uh, chairman of the publicly held company to let me spit it out of his organization. And we took it public in 1996. It, it was the second most successful IPO on the uh, NASDAQ uh, from a going public standpoint. I think we were like 17 times oversubscribed. Nice. And then 18 months later, Xerox stepped in and bought the company for $420 million, which was a lot of money at the time because I think we were doing about $135 million in revenue and we were probably just barely profitable at 5 or $8 million. Oh, Three times top line. Can't complain about that. Yeah, so yeah. it was it was a good deal. I spent a year at Xerox. Uh, I promised them I would transition the company for a year. What was it like going inside that organization, particularly after you having been out for looks like at least about 10 years, right, with regards to Excel Connect? When I was there, um, they had just brought, I can't remember the gentleman's name in, but the CEO of Xerox was going to retire. They were bringing over one of the top executives, I think it was Rick Thomas from IBM. And culturally, Xerox was the probably had the strongest corporate culture I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, Arthur Anderson was strong, but this was even stronger. Yeah. Uh, but it was so strong that it was actually, in my opinion, killing the organization. Uh, there was I, I saw no innovation. I saw no, uh, you know, focus on the customer per se. Uh, there was so much overhead to me. It was just mind-numbing being an entrepreneur. I remember when we went to our uh, kickoff meeting. I brought myself and uh, I had a marketing, and we were the transition team. And I showed up, and they had probably 60 executives in a room helping us transition our company. And I just said, you guys got to be kidding me. I don't need this much help. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Very yeah, they, different they had approach. a great brand and I met some great people. Actually, I met uh, Bill McDermott there that went on to become the SAP, uh, CEO of SAP. Sure. And we, yeah. we're still good yeah. friends to this day. Um, and it, I think they produced some really good people. I just think they let the culture eventually destroy the organization. Right. Oh, unfortunately, that happens. So Full Tilt was next. That was your next startup, correct? That's correct. Tell me a little bit about them. Went out and raised about $22 million with three VCs. And uh, we built probably the best piece of software I've ever been associated with in my life. We built a product information master data management system, which really allowed large companies where they have you know many, many products and all that data sheet that you see when you buy something. You know, that information all has to be held, and typically in most large corporations, it's all over the place. Uh, there's no system of record, so we built a, a system that was really sophisticated to go in and aggregate all that data and become a system of record. Um, we spent about 10 years doing that. Eventually, we sold the company off uh, to uh, uh, a company out in Silicon Valley. 
I would tell you it was probably my most disappointing economic output from a company. Uh, we didn't make a lot of money for our investors on that. Uh, and uh, it was just we were we were probably 10 to 15 years ahead of the marketplace. I would tell you even today, master data management is still uh, one of the most complex uh, problems existing within large organizations. Right. So so did you uh, go on with that uh, sale as well and then become a part of that management company of the Silicon Base Valley? No, actually, uh, when we sold that company uh, to QRD, I completely walked away from it. Uh, and that's actually I was on the board at uh, Med Decisions. They had gotten into financial trouble and uh, the board asked me to step in and take the company over. Uh, they had gone public about 18 months earlier than that. They were running out of cash. Uh, the main product that they had gone public on wasn't taking off from the revenue stream fast enough. Make a long story short, I was able to help uh, uh, the team there get that company sold in a transaction that was probably 4x uh, the market value that it was trading at at the time. Uh, so the investors got out whole. Uh, the company that bought it was actually the largest Blue Cross Blue Shield plan in the United States. And uh, it was also MedDecision's largest customer. So in many respects, I think they bought the technology, one, to protect uh, their own interests, but two, also, they were able to then go out and market that technology to the other 56 Blue Cross Blue Shield plans in the United States, helping them recruit some of their investment as well. Got it. Awesome. And then uh, iPipeline is next, your most recent CEO position for which you're now a strategic advisor. Was that a company that you started up or did you were you brought in there to uh, straighten things out, so to speak? Well, it was actually funny. It was It's kind of a twist of a little bit. Um, one of my really good friends in Philadelphia is one of the leading uh, venture capitalists there, Mike DiPiano from New Springs Capital. And while I was selling uh, Med Decisions, he called me up and he said, hey, Tim, I have a company right in your backyard that I'm thinking about investing in, but I really have a love-hate relationship with it. He said, there are some days I want to invest in, and some days I think I'm out of my mind. He said, would you <laughs> mind doing me a favor if you have some time, do some due diligence on it, let me know what you think. So I spent about three weeks uh, just after I wrapped up the sale of my decisions, uh, talked to a lot of people in the insurance industry, talked to a lot of agents. I uh, did a lot of market research, make a long story short, I came back to Mike and I said, Mike, I got to tell you something. I think this is a really great opportunity. Uh, this industry is really fragmented. Uh, there's not a lot of use of technology. None of the big guys are here. So you don't have the IBMs or the Oracles really servicing these organizations. And I said, you have these little $5 million companies providing mission-critical software to multi-billion-dollar insurance carriers. I said, it's crazy. Um, so I made a decision, and uh, he said, Tim, if, you, if you'll if you be the CEO, I'll invest in it. Mm. Um, awesome. So him and uh, it was Fidelity Ventures was the other organization, which is now Volition Capital with Roger Hurwitz. Uh, I put money in myself personally. We bought the company. It was doing about $6 million in revenue. It was slightly profitable. It had one product. Um, and we bought it for, I think at the time, about $18 million with a post-money valuation of maybe 32 Had 29 employees. And then over the left. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a 10-year-old startup that they couldn't right. just get going. Right, right. So over the next 11 years, uh, we really drove the growth of it. Uh, we 
did 11 acquisitions. We brought four to six new products to the marketplace ourselves. But we really laid out day one an integrated strategy where I told these guys, I said, if we can control the data, and there's such large metadata when you fill out an insurance policy, because I get your income history, your family history, your medical history, your vices, everything you've done wrong in your life, et cetera. Right. (laughs) All on 30 or 40 pages of paper. Yeah. Uh, And that agent collects that from that consumer. And then that information is shared with a distributor. It could be with a broker dealer if it's being sold through, you know, your your financial advisor versus an independent agent. Uh, And then it goes to the carrier to go through underwriting. And then they collect all kind of third-party information to validate the underwriting uh, rules that they use in order to determine your mortality rate, which then determines what they're going to actually charge you for that policy. And 11 years ago, all this was done on paper, everything. Yeah. Right. Uh, even today, after 11 years of our success, and we've taken that company from 29 people to 800, mm-hmm. we operate in like six different countries with offices in both Canada, the UK, and uh, the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably control about 35% of the market share of any insurance uh, application uh, that's issued in the UK. We probably have about... 70% market share in North America. Um, and we scaled that company from that $6 million revenue stream to approximately $200 million last year. And, and we were generating gross margins over 40% on the bottom line. Nice, nice. So so you stepped down, uh, looks like just a little over a year ago, I think, right? As yeah, last CEO. August. Right. And uh, what, what led you to that decision? Did you just kind of feel top of your game? Now it's time to move on or other opportunities inspire you? Tell, tell us a little bit about your decision on that transition. Well, it was a very hard decision. I could tell you that. I could imagine. Yeah. But when I came there uh, 11 years earlier, uh, the guy that actually helped hire me, the existing CEO, was a young man named Larry Barron. Uh, when I took the job as CEO, he came to me and he said, Hey, listen, I really want to stay on. I don't, I don't want to leave. And I said, Larry, I said, you know, it usually doesn't work out that well, uh, keeping the other CEO around. I said, but you know, you seem like a nice guy. Your strengths really on the financial side at this point in time, we'll try it out. And, uh, to make a long story short, it, uh, was an unbelievable relationship. Larry was my right hand man the whole 11 years. He did have a very strong financial background. His core values were very similar to mine from a work ethic and an honesty standpoint, integrity, et cetera. Uh, so we actually made a phenomenal team. Uh, and we augmented that with probably seven or eight other great executives. Uh, you know, RVCs would tell you that we were one of the few organizations uh, that when they had the closing dinner last August, they said, Tim, you know, the whole executive team that you recruited the first two, two years you were here is still sitting here with you for the most part. Mm-hmm. I think you turned over one executive over that whole yeah, 11 year yeah. time frame. Uh, so the yeah. moral of that story is, you know, you know, building great teams, uh, not only hard, but if you get a good one. Uh, it can really help you pay dividends. Keep them close, right? Keep them close. Tim, how would you say your leadership style has really evolved over time, not just at iPipeline, but, you know, from your foundation in those early years? I, well, thank God for maturity, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> you know, I I would tell you that I'm a very passionate person. Mm-hmm. That passion can sometimes be construed as pretty volatile, 
Um, so I would tell you that I think early on in my leadership positions, I had a tendency to probably lose my temper a little more than I did uh, as I matured. As you mellowed. Yeah, right? as I uh-huh. mellowed. <laughs> and that was something that I had to learn. I really, right. you know, I, ha- I had to learn, you know, one of the best advice anybody ever gave me was Pat Cairns, who's a partner at BEA, uh, one of the largest technology uh, venture capital sure. companies. And Pat said to me one day, he said, Tim, you know, one thing I've learned in my life, if somebody hits you with really bad news, the best thing you can do is nothing. He said, just do nothing. Just assimilate. Let it sit for 24 hours. See what happens as a result. And you'll be much more clear in 24 hours than you would if you make some knee-jerk reaction because you're not going to have all the facts. You're not going to understand all the ramifications of why this happened, you know, et cetera. And that's one piece of advice I've tried to, you know, pass on to all the young CEOs that I mentor is that, you know, if you really get hit with a crisis, don't do anything. Just sit back and let things evolve (laughs) for 24 hours before you make any decisions. And I got to tell you something, that was one of the best pieces of advice. That's I ever a got great piece advice. of it. It's kind of like writing that email in the heat of passion and then just waiting overnight before you send it. Right. right? And half, time you delete, <laughs> half the time you delete it the next day. Anyway. That's right. Or you rewrite it five more times. Substantially. That's great advice. How do you decide when it's time to micromanage or, you know, stay out of somebody's sandbox? Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, my executive team would tell you that my level of detail and what I knew about what was going on in the company, they could never understand how I knew everything. Um, but I'm a vivacious reader, so I read everything that comes across my desk. So I would read the you know, product designs, I'd read the yeah. roadmaps, I'd read everything, uh, feedback from the customers on, on everything. But I never micromanage them. Um, I really believe, and I tell people this all the time, listen, I'm going to hire you because I think you're really good at what you do. I'm going to tell you when you're screwing up. I'm not going to tell you very often that you're doing a phenomenal job. I pay you way too much money for that. Um, so I'm not a big praise guy. And that's one of my probably things that I need. I've always had to make a point to try to do better uh, as an executive. Um, but listen to me. I'm going to give you as much rope as you want. Just don't hang yourself. Right. You know, if you get into trouble, come see me and we'll work it out. But just don't go out there and hang yourself and do something that's so stupid that you back me into a corner with the decisions I have to make. Right, right, right. That's excellent. Um, you know, you talk, spoke a little earlier about the Xerox culture, right, and how different that was than where you'd worked in the past. And, of course, at iPipeline, you know, you were really essential in building that company culture, going from the few employees to the many and, of course, the fantastic results in sales and margins. What are your thoughts? What's important about building a company culture, Tim, and how do you go about doing that as a CEO? Well, i got to tell you, I think it's the most important thing that you do as a CEO. Um, and I think if you went back and talked to Larry or any of my other executives, they will tell you that we built a phenomenal culture at iPipeline. In fact, you know, when you read third-party analysis about the company, that's one of the things that they always zero in on. And what I try to tell people is culture is so comprehensive. It's the way you decorate the office. It's the programs that you will put into the organization, like wellness programs, Uh, counseling programs, educational programs. It's the contest you have, you know, where you're going to have barbecue contests or cooking contests or, you know, mud races. 
Um, it's everything. It's how many times and how you're giving feedback to employees. Uh, you know, are you going to provide them real time feedback or are you going to make them wait, you know, every year for an annual review? Um, so it's, it's just little things that all build up to, you know, what defines that organization, both from a customer looking into it, as well as in the employees evaluating where they're working, who they're working with, and whether or not they feel like they really have a purpose for what they're doing. What would you say is most unusual or perhaps unique about the iPipeline culture? I think one of the most unique things was we had a lot of contests. Um, I really love competition. <laughs> Brings out the best in people. Oh, I wait. I went out the first, probably the second year we were there, and I went out and I bought a four and a half foot trophy. And we would have barbecue contests every summer. And you had to put a team together of 15 or 20 people. I gave you $500 at the time, and you had to cook the entire company lunch. <laughs> I love it. So they started, you know, days before they'd have to go shopping for everything that you weren't allowed to go over your budget. Uh, you had to have a theme. So they had, you had to bring music. You had to, you know, create costumes that you were going to wear as part of the barbecue. Uh, so that was just one of the things that we did. Yeah. You know, the company picnic every year was an event that, you know, we put a lot of time, work, and effort into mm -hmm. for our employees, the Christmas parties. Um, we used to have innovation days. We still do have innovation days uh, two or three times a year where we'd let people take, you know, a half day or an entire day. And they just, you know, they get a team together of mm -hmm. six, ten people. And their job is to come up with either something that can change our product line or improve the company. Um, and it just gives them a chance to really exercise, but participate in who we are as a company and where we were yeah. going. Uh, yeah. We did cultural improvement days, even though we had a great culture. I never felt like I had the best ideas in the world that I couldn't learn from other people. And, uh, you know, we would let our employees bring, you know, cultural recommendations about things that they would want to see uh, the company do or put in place. Uh, and that was very beneficial for the teamwork and the overall uh, building of the culture as well. That's awesome, Tim. And, you know, it's so refreshing to hear you say that. So many CEOs struggle with how do they best show their appreciation for their employees. And they always go to money. And, you know, you've proven, I think, through those examples and obviously through your success, that it's not always about that, right? It's showing them that they're appreciated. It's engaging them in a way in which they can be creative and have fun and be competitive. Those things go so much further than just throwing, you know, a bigger bonus at them. I mean, bonuses are good, but. <laughs> but I'll tell you, one of the other things that I'll tell any CEO to do, one of the things I did every day was I walked the halls. I went into the cafeteria, I went into the kitchen, I talked to our employees, and I wanted to know about what their personal life was, how the yeah. kids were doing, you know, what was there anything that they needed? Um, if you can form that personal relationship with every employee, and I'm not talking about just talking to some of them, one of the biggest compliments I would always get from a new employee was, Tim, you're the first CEO I've ever talked to. I've never, most of the companies mm -hmm. I've worked at, I've never even met the CEO. And I, and I felt that that was such a sad message from an yeah, organizational it leader. It's so true, though. I mean, I see it all the time, you know, in my executive search business, how so many CEOs are just really out of touch with the rank and file. What, talking about your staff, what, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire, Tim? Probably two or three of my key hiring traits. Loyalty is extremely important to me. Mm. 
uh, it's probably my number one thing that I look for when I hire somebody. Uh, so if you come to me and you've had five jobs in the last five years, I'm probably not even going to interview you um, because that's just not demonstrating to me that you're making a commitment to the organization or the people that you're working with. Um, I look for smart people uh, and not not academically smart. Common sense to me is so much yeah. more valuable than, than smart. academic smarts. You know, people understanding, you know, what's going on in the street, just like you said. And then the other thing I look for is drive. Um, You know, I've worked my rear end off my entire life. And I used to do a lot of talking to our younger employees. And I'd say, you know, you can read studies. And the difference between the top 1% of the workforce and the rest of the workforce is two hours a week. If you're willing to devote two hours of self help, self-education, or just additional work, you will get to the top of your game faster than the rest of the workforce. Absolutely. And people don't realize it's just not that big of a tweak to become the best. Right, right. (laughs) Oh, that's great stuff. Well, Tim, time has just flown by, but we always have one last question we ask all of our CEO guests. And, you know, that's what kind of career and life advice you'd give to someone who perhaps has their eyes on the corner office in their organization or or perhaps wants to, you know, be an entrepreneur like you, either buying a company or starting something up someday. What what would you tell them? I I would tell them two things. One, make sure you're happy at what you're doing. Mm. Uh, Because I've seen so many people strive for success you know, get to the corner office or to the bigger job, but they're just absolutely not happy at what they're doing. Right. Um, so I'd say, you know, try to find something that really you're passionate about, uh, that really lights you up every day, that gets you excited to get out of bed for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're not finding that, go look for it because, you know, it, it's just not worth, you know, devoting that much of your entire life into something if you're not going to have fun at it and enjoy it. Right, right. So key. Well, Tim Wallace, most recent CEO and strategic advisor to iPipeline, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you, Brand. I really appreciated the time with you today. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.